Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. This week, I'm talking to Doug Talmy, professor of entomology and wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware, whose book, Bringing Nature Home, recommends that we garden with native plants to feed insects. The history of gardening mirrors the history of the relationship between humans and the natural world. One of the earliest forms of a garden was an enclosure that kept the threatening parts of nature at bay, whereas more modern gardens, like those of the Romantics, express our desire to reconnect with nature. These days, we often garden the way our neighbors do, especially those of us who live in the suburbs. Think of the immaculate front lawn, the boxwood that seems to hug the front of our houses. Doug Tallamy is asking us to rethink some of these habits. I began the interview by asking him, why native plants, and why are insects so important? Way back in 1987, I think it was, uh, E.O. Wilson wrote a paper talking about why we actually need insects on, on planet Earth. If they were to disappear, everything else would too, including humans. And that's because they're critical in terms of, of pollinating the plants that support the, the food webs, uh, that support everything else. They also are the, the um, organisms that, that transfer the most energy from plants to other animals. So most animals don't eat plants directly. They actually eat the insects that ate the plants. So if you take insects away, um, you eventually lose uh, the plants that require uh, pollination and you lose the food that supports the mammals and the reptiles and the amphibians and particularly the birds. Um, so life on earth would, would change dramatically. Um, that's a, you know, that's a, a, a big message for people to swallow. Most people just don't don't really believe that if insects disappear, so do we. But of course, headlines lately are telling us that's exactly what's happening. I mean, the New York Times carries articles called Insect Armageddon, and, and uh, the insects really are disappearing because we uh, have not created spaces that are favorable to them. The primary reason is that most insects that eat plants are what we call host plant specialists. They can only eat particular plants. Plants don't want to be eaten. Plants protect their tissues with nasty chemicals. So for insects to be able to eat those plants, they have to adapt to those chemicals. They have to develop the physiology, the enzymes, and the behavioral adaptations that allow them to eat those plants without dying. Um, which means it, it, that happens, but it takes a very long period of evolutionary time. And when we take plants from other continents, particularly Asia, and we bring them over here and replace our native plant communities that, that have co-evolved with our local insects, um, well, our insects have never seen those plants before. The adaptation has not happened. And in almost all cases, they can't eat them, which means we create insect-free spaces. Uh, and actually for gardeners, that has been a goal for a long time, you know, Plant plants that are, quote, pest-free. But when you do that, you also have a yard that is insect-free, which means you don't have breeding birds because that's what they're feeding their young. Uh, and the food web starts to collapse when we eliminate insects in our, in our landscapes. So did you get that? If insects disappear, so do we. That's right. If insects disappear, so do we. So the next question is, what do we have to do to garden for insects? Talamy proposes a change in our culture of gardening and the way we think about our gardens. To begin with, the way he sees it, we can no longer think of our gardens as discrete places that belong only to us. 
all of our, our gardens are landscapes. A lot of people think the garden is just the place where you put your flowers and, and nothing else counts. But let's talk about the entire landscape, all of the property that you own. That is part of a local ecosystem. And the way we treat that landscape is either going to enhance that ecosystem or degrade it. So when we have acres of lawn, um, we're, we're not doing the critical things that every landscape has to do. And it's not just for other creatures. It's for, it's for us. It's for humans. Every landscape has to manage the local watershed. Because if we don't, then we have a destroyed watershed. We have floods. We have pollution. We have all kinds of nasty things. Um, we have to preserve those pollinators. So every landscape has, now has to have the plants that support the specialized pollinators that keep our, our, uh, our plants going. Um, and again, lawn doesn't do that. Most of our plants from Asia don't do that. We also have to support the food webs that support all the biodiversity around us. And we have to sequester carbon. And we have to do that everywhere where humans are. In the past, we thought all oh, that was happening in nature because it was and it is, but now we don't have enough nature. You know, we've, we've chopped up the world into, into private properties. 83% of the U.S. is privately owned right now, and 86% of, of the U.S. east of the Mississippi is privately owned. So these things have to happen on our private properties because there's simply not enough public property out there to, to perform. What we're talking about is, is creating ecosystem services that, uh, that keep humans happy on this, on this planet. Keeps everything else happy as well, but we can just focus on, on humans. The other aspect of Talmy's paradigm shift has to do with how we value our gardens. Most gardening literature focuses on the beauty of gardens, which of course implies that gardens are essentially for humans. Bees, after all, see an entirely different color scheme. And our sense of beauty is also grounded in modern notions of aesthetics that separate beauty from other values. Interested in the idea that we need to expand our notion of beauty, I asked Talmy to talk about his experience on his own property in southeastern Pennsylvania. Cindy and I uh, uh, moved in here. This, this area was mowed for hay, moved in in 2000, in 2000, I guess it was. It was mowed for hay, and, and um, the history of the landscape, it had actually been taken out of mowing three years before we moved in, and uh, what came in in that time was all the non-native plants, the invasive species uh, from Asia. We had autumn olive and multiflora rose and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and on and on and on. So our first goal was to, to try to manage uh, those plants, uh, remove them as much as possible, and then start planting the natives that, that used to be here. It was during that period that I started to learn about all the things I've been writing about recently. And it was our property that, that actually helped us do that. One day walking around looking at the... Uh, all the non-native plants. I am an entomologist, so I, I look for insects all the time. And the way you look for insects is to look for little feeding feeding holes on leaves, then turn the leaf over and see what, what has made that hole. In Bringing Nature Home, Talmy writes, a plant that has fed nothing has not done its job. I asked him to comment. That's a central part of my message, is to expand um, how we view plants. In the past, we've only seen them as decorations. So we've collected the prettiest plants from all over the world. And that has been the goal. It's been an artistic goal of, of how we can decorate the landscape uh, as very aesthetically pleasing ways. And that, you know, that fuels the cultivar industry. We've got to make a new, new cultivar because these, all the designs are going to change each year. It's very much like the fashion industry. Right. Um, well, you know, that's still true. Plants are beautiful. And we do want to have pretty landscapes, but they're also 
they are the most critical organisms on the planet in terms of keeping life on this planet. And if mm. we forget all their ecological roles and we don't plant them in ways where they can perform those roles, uh, then we're in trouble. And the reason I say that is because we're doing that everywhere. If, if, if it were a few gardens here and there and you had lots of healthy ecosystems doing what they always have done intact out there, it would be all right. But mm -hmm. that's no longer the case. It's, it's now, um, you know, we have an area the size of New England in lawn in the U.S. And I, I pick on lawn because it doesn't perform any of the things we were talking about earlier. And um, that's not creating that, that interacting ecosystem that we need in, in our yards. So we want to get plants there. We want to do it uh, in, in aesthetically pleasing ways. I don't talk about design because I'm not a designer and there's no one design that works for anybody. So you can design, you can use, you can use native plants, the ones that support these insects the best formally if you want. Um, but relying solely on, on decorative plants from other continents is, uh, it's an ecological disaster. And of course, what is it? 85% of the invasive plants in this country are escapees from our garden. So they don't stay mm. in our garden. They're out there in our natural areas. And every play, every time you have a, a, uh, a forest where the understory is all bush honeysuckle or privet or multiflora rose, you've displaced all those native plants that are, that are running that ecosystem. This problem of invasive plants that escape from our gardens into the wild are another reminder that our gardens are not isolated places. I asked Helmi about the recent trend to create wildlife corridors actively connecting gardens to each other, and if he'd heard of any interesting examples. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing about more and more of these. Um, the one I talk about uh, in my talks all the time is a really successful, I guess you'd call it a restoration in southern Florida. The Atala butterfly is a specialist on a uh, cycad, a native cycad called Kunti. Well, the cycad was... Uh, had a lot of starch in its roots, and around the turn of the century, they started a starch industry from kunti roots and essentially eliminated kunti from the wild in, in Florida. Uh, well, that's the only plant that this, this butterfly can eat, so it disappeared as well. And it actually was declared extinct. It was labeled uh, officially extinct because they couldn't find any. Um, but then Kunti was recognized as a, a, a valuable landscape plant. It's, it's a low-growing evergreen shrub, and it does well in the sandy soils of, of South Florida. So the, the horticultural trade started to promote it, and now it's a very common plant in people's gardens and, and parks throughout Southern Florida. So in other words, it's created the connectivity that was required to restore this butterfly. Apparently, there was one little population on one of the keys and it's now at colonizing all of these kunti plants that are in gardens. There's still no kunti in the wild, uh, but uh, it's, it's becoming a fairly common butterfly. And that can happen for all the species that are in trouble if we put the plants they need on our properties. One of the interesting things about Talmi's book is that he speaks to people living in the suburbs. I happened to come across his book shortly after I moved out of Brooklyn, and I was feeling anxious thinking that to be environmentally responsible, you had to live in a city. But Talami makes it clear that anyone with a garden can make a positive impact. He also points out that New York City, like all cities, depend on the resources of areas that are less developed. All of the water, the clean water that, that New York City uses, comes from the Catskills. 
And the only reason it comes from the Catskills is because the Catskills are largely preserved. Uh, that was a conscious move. You know, the, the city helped buy up land and, and prevent it from being developed in ways that would ruin that watershed. Uh, so now you have clean water in, in the Catskills. That's true for food. It's true for, for clean air. It's true for, for all of the ecosystem services that everybody needs. So those of us who live in the suburbs have a job to do. The trouble is we're still in the habit of thinking that there's a bright line between where we live and where the rest of nature lives. Recently in my village, people started spotting coyotes, coyotes being one of those resilient creatures that's good at adapting to living near humans. Some of my neighbors were, well, pretty freaked out. I understood where they were coming from, but I also wondered about this belief we have that humans live here, as it were, while wild creatures belong somewhere else. You know, these are, these are very old, deeply ingrained feelings um, for many thousands of years we had to fight nature just to survive. And there were predators out there that did eat us. And the coyote reminds us of those predators. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's genetically ingrained in us to be wary of, of something that might be dangerous. And we've taken that to an extreme. We're wary of all kinds of things that aren't dangerous at all. Um, but that's inherent. And we can't pretend that it doesn't exist. That's where that caution comes from, because uh, it used to be well-founded. We're going to have to find ways to coexist with nature because we are part of nature. We are not separate. We depend on all of those functioning parts. Uh, so to, to continue this war against nature that got us here uh, it isn't going to work anymore. There's far too many people on the planet, and destroying the systems that support us is, is a sure way to, to uh, encourage our, our doom. So, so even though it... You know, we still have the, the mentality of, of uh, cavemen. That's where our thought patterns come from, because we have evolved so quickly and invented technology so fast that our, our emotional thoughts have not, have not evolved at the same rate. So we're still thinking like cavemen, even though there's billions of us on the planet. Uh, and that creates a conflict. So we're going to have to uh, recognize that conflict. And, and you know, we've, we've got to overcome those feelings and realize that we need healthy nature. That includes predators. We have a huge deer problem because we've gotten rid of all the predators. Every population on the planet needs top-down controls, or they outstrip their, their uh, plant resources. So our deer go crazy because we've gotten rid of all the predators, and, and, and then we wonder why we have a deer problem. The coyotes, it's our top predator at this point. They're not going to control the deer, but they're helping a little bit. So, so, you know, let's learn to live with it. We can do a better job. And actually, you know, in Europe, they, they are doing a better job. They've, they've got a lot more top predators in, in human-dominated human landscapes than we allow. And of course, if maintaining biodiversity were not reason enough to be thoughtful about what we put in our gardens, there's climate change. All plants are built out of carbon uh, that they have pulled out of the atmosphere, and they exchange that. And, and, and produce oxygen that they pump into the atmosphere. So the oxygen we breathe has all been created by plants, another reason to keep plants on the, on the planet. And we've taken the plants away from the planet. We have removed more than half of the forests that were once here. That changes weather, not climate, but weather patterns because plants are transpiring moisture into the air. 
Uh, and when you take them away, that stops. So it increases desertification um, and, and starts the process of ecosystem collapse, uh, particularly in, in tropical areas of the world where we we're chopping down the rainforest and replacing it with, with pasture for cattle and soybeans. So plants are vital in terms of pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere. But they're even more vital in terms of they, they, they capture more carbon than they can use. So they do build their tissues out of carbon, but with the extra carbon, they actually pump it into the soil with their roots. When you look at the, the amount of carbon that is stored in soil in different types of systems. So here's some averages that, that soil scientists have come up with. Uh, a lawn, the average lawn will sequester about 120 pounds of carbon per acre per year in the soil. An average meadow or prairie will sequester about 3,000 pounds of carbon per acre per year, and a forest about 3,500 pounds of carbon. And you say, well, wow, I, I thought a forest would be much more than a prairie, uh, but it's not because prairie plants have very deep roots. You know, they'll go down 15, 20 feet, and they're pumping carbon into the soil all the time. So it's the soil that holds most of the carbon in the system. And every time we plow, or bulldoze soil, it releases 70% of the carbon that's stored in there. So we need to put our put plants back everywhere, specifically so they can pump carbon back into the soil. The soil scientists are now telling us that our soils on planet Earth can store seven times the amount of carbon that's currently in the atmosphere, if we give them a chance to do that. Uh, so, you know, or we would have no carbon problems, and that includes all the carbon we pumped up in there w w from our fossil fuels, if we could get it back into the soil. And I had, a, I had a student a few years ago say, we need to invent a machine that will do that. And I said, we've got a machine, it's called a plant. You know, native plants don't do that any better than non-native plants, but we do have particular native plants, well, particular plants, but, but they're native, that are really, really good at it. Oaks. Are, are number one. They're the, they're the best. They're really dense uh, and they sequester a ton of carbon and then they pump it into the soil. I mentioned those prairie plants in, in grasslands that are doing that all the time. So when you see pavement, when you see a lawn that is, you know, uh, mowed really short all the time, what you're looking at is a wasted opportunity in terms of fighting climate change. So it's not the only thing we need to do but it's a very powerful thing we need to do that most people are not doing. So it's another thing you can say, well, I moved into the suburbs uh, and, and I'm not living in a city, so I'm wasting energy, blah, blah, blah. But not really. You are pumping carbon into the soil with the proper landscape and helping uh, mitigate climate change everywhere. Okay, so where do we start? Gardening in a whole new way can seem like a tall order. What if you don't have a lot of time or money what if you're used to paying a landscaper who has a cookie-cutter approach to gardening? I asked Talmi for advice. Let me, let me address those people that, that haven't been gardening on their own. They just want to hire somebody. I think we can still do that, but I would like to, I would like to create a new, uh, a new service sector, call them ecological landscapers. So rather than just hiring the mow and blow guys, you hire ecological landscapers, and they come onto your property and do all the things that need to be done. So if you don't want to get out there and get on your hands and knees, 
it's okay. Hire somebody who, who has the knowledge to do that. Yeah, I think that's a great business opportunity, actually, for those out there who are looking for a new profession. I mean, they're, they're starting to emerge, but there's still there aren't as many, I think, as there might be a demand for. You know, I go out and I give a talk and people come up to me afterward and say, oh, I'm going to rip out all my lawn and, and uh, start doing this immediately. I don't advise you do that. <laughs> I say, take it slow, have a plan. Um, most people can can start adding trees to their yards uh, inexpensively and, and quickly without having a, a major plan. Uh, that immediately is going in the right direction. It does reduce the area that's in lawn. Um, and it's something you can pick at over, over the years. Uh, so if you if you change your entire landscape in one year, it can be expensive. It's certainly a lot of work, uh, and and it's really not it's not necessary. Just just think about what your landscape ought to be doing, and what can you do this year to help it help it do that. Most people have way more lawn than they need. Uh, grass is the perfect plant to be able to walk on without killing it. So use it as a as a path, it's a mechanism to that guides you through your your landscape, so that you can interact with the other plants that are there. Thomas Rayner talks about lawn should be a, an area rug, not wall to wall carpeting. Mm, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah, I would like to see front lawns in particular change because I mean we have an area in the back that my son uses as a soccer field, and that's sacred for you know understandable reasons. But the front lawn doesn't serve the same role, you know. Um, it's it's an it's an aesthetic and and a, a sort of a cultural thing that we've inherited, often without really knowing why we do it. Because it's a it's a symbol of the rich. That's why it's it's a status symbol that that you know really came into our country with the aristocracy from Europe. Only people who had a lot of sheep or a lot of slaves could have, and also the wealth that you didn't have to use your your yard for to grow food. They were the only people that could have lawns. So uh, you know. That's that's the culture. It brings me to one of my pet peeves. We talk about creating backyard habitats. We don't touch that front yard. The front yard is still going to be off, off limits. Whereas if you put a nice oak tree in your front yard, it's aesthetically pleasing and it's a perfect habitat for so many things. So I would approach it by, by looking for opportunities to re- reduce the area that you have in lawn. Uh, if the ultimate goal is to cut your area in lawn in half, that would be a, a great place to start. If you put in a new tree, create a bed around it. Put in some plants underneath that tree that will create a layered landscape. So you have the canopy, the subcanopy right down to shrub, and then and then uh, something other than grass on the ground. Um, those are all things that you can you can pick at. You talk about using seed for planting trees. You talk about uh, collecting acorns, for instance, have you used seeds for herbaceous plants as well in your garden, or have you tended to plant with uh, with live plants? Um, both ways, both ways. There are, you know, I I, I try to keep it uh, inexpensive, and that's why I talk about seeds. It's one of the reasons I talk about using seeds. If you start from seed, you you typically get a healthier plant, particularly when you're talking about woody plants. If you're buying trees and, and pot, they're going to be root bound almost every single time. And, and, um, or they have been root pruned if you transplant large trees so that, that uh, they have to rebuild their, their root system. And often there's a high percentage of mortality while they're doing that. 
So, I, you know, go out and collect that egg corn and you get yourself a very healthy oak that will grow faster and surpass the 15-footer the you bought for $3,000 uh, in just a few years. People find that hard to believe. They're a trick, though. If you put that acorn right in the ground, chances are a rodent's going to eat it. So I, I now start them in pots uh, and then put it out the following year uh, or the following spring. If it's in the white oak group, it'll germinate in the fall, and then you plant it in the spring. You've got to plant it quickly so it doesn't get root bound. And you have to protect it against deer as well, right? Especially you if you're in an area that's deer. Absolutely. Deer frequent. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what you do with your leaf litter? You know, in my neighborhood, most of my neighbors diligently either blow or rake their leaves into the street to get picked up by DPW, but you encourage people to maintain your leaf litter. Could you talk a little bit about why? Leaf litter is the perfect mulch. The same people that blow their leaves into the street then go out and buy mulch and put it all over their, their beds. The leaf litter contains the nutrients that that tree used that year to grow. Uh, and if you allow them to, to uh, decompose on the ground, you're returning those nutrients to, to the soil and you have a closed system. You're not losing nutrients every year. If you, if you have them carted away, they're lost to the system. So you either uh, are, are uh, making your soil more nutrient poor every year or you fertilize and it's never in the same percentages that it ought to be. And it's usually too much and then it gets into our watershed. Uh, so if you can find a way to keep your leaves on your property and, and, you know, the place to put them is in your beds. My son called me up a few years ago and he had just moved into a new house and he said, dad, I've got leaves everywhere. What should I do with them? I said, rake them into your beds. And he said, uh, I don't have enough beds. And I said, exactly. <laughs> that's the, that's the chance go. to make more beds and reduce the area that's, that's in lawn. That's That's been to some degree my strategy for gardening, I have to say. I have a couple of raised beds in my front lawn, and I'm going to add a couple more where I grow my vegetables because that's where I get the most sunlight. And I, I had to have some soil brought in for the raised beds, which was left on an area of lawn, which killed the lawn. So that became my new native plant garden. <laughs> well, the other thing is we see the world from the ground up. We don't see what's happening in the ground. Uh, but there's, there are actually more species living in the ground than above the ground. And that is your soil community. They're small, so we don't, see, we don't see them, we don't care about them, but they're essential in terms of keeping your soil healthy and your plants growing and recycling those nutrients. And the best housing for the, that soil community uh, are the leaves that come from your trees. Let's sum up what we've learned. Keep your leaves. You don't need as much grass as you might think. Hire an ecological landscaper, if you can find one and afford one, or do it yourself, taking on one piece of your garden at a time. Plant trees from seeds, starting them in a pot and protecting them against deer until they are large enough to defend themselves. Plant plants that belong in your region and that will feed indigenous insects, especially the pollinators. If you want to know which plants will have the most impact, Talamy suggests going to the Native Plant Finder on the National Wildlife Federation website. I'll also put up a link on our website at in-the-weeds.net. Once you're at the Native Plant Finder, enter your zip code and it will pull up what Talamy calls the keystone genera for your region. Because it turns out that choosing native plants isn't enough to contribute to wildlife. Talamy's recent research has shown that about 5% of the local plant genera in any location is making about 75% of the food. 
In the northeast, those keystone plants include native oaks, willows, cherries, birches, poplars, goldenrod, sunflowers, and asters. You may still be scratching your head over the idea that we should plant to feed insects, but don't worry, this doesn't mean a landscape of denuded trees and stripped-down perennials, although you may still have to contend with deer and rabbits. Once you start gardening for insects, part of the joy becomes hunting for them. If you plant milkweed in your garden, chances are you will find monarch butterflies and caterpillars. Parsley or dill will bring the black swallowtail. But some of the insects you plant for are difficult to find. Bringing Nature Home is filled with pictures of some of the beautiful insects you can attract in your garden. I asked Talmi if he could give us any tips for finding these creatures. It is funny. I give a talk and I show pictures of lots of pretty caterpillars and people... The people who used to spray for this caterpillar say, oh, I can't find them. I'm looking for them. I can't find them. Um, well, they, you know, they're trying to hide because they are the primary food that birds are eating. So uh, many of these species are what we, we call uh, cryptic. They blend in with their background and some of them do it really, really well. So they sit on the edge of a leaf and they look like uh, a curled leaf or they look like uh, part of a dead leaf. They'll, they'll uh, line up with the bark on a tree and blend in perfectly. They sit on a branch and blend in with the bark on the branch. Um, or they'll, they'll sit in a flower and be exactly the color of the flower. So they're very good at hiding. And, and what you have to do is develop uh, what we, we call a search image. You, um, you get good at recognizing all the little tricks that they, they have. And it, it's a learning curve there. You have to get used to it. A lot of the insects that, that are eating plants do it at night. So right away, uh, you're, you're going to miss things if you only search during the day. Um, and a lot of them, anything that tastes good is typically on the underside of a leaf because it doesn't want the birds to find them or it's in a curled leaf. If it, if it doesn't taste good and it's advertising its bad taste, then it's usually right out in the open, often on top of the leaf saying, uh, I, I don't taste good and don't bother with me. So those are those are some of the tricks. Of course, I you know I show lots of pictures in my talks, but I don't find all of those those insects in one day. <laughs> those are things yeah, that have accumulated over time, and you have to. Everybody, every species has a a period in which it's common, and the rest of the year it's not there. So you have to be searching for these things right from April right through November. So. I find my children are pretty good at spotting yes. things. You know, if you you teach them young and they're at the right height, <laughs> sometimes. Good eyes too. So, one of the things that astonishes me is that when you plant milkweed, for example, a monarch butterfly will find it, even if it's an isolated patch. And the same is true for other butterflies and their host plants. I asked Talmi how this happens. How is it that the monarch butterfly finds my milkweed? When that female's flying around looking for a host plant, um, there are volatiles in the air. So she's using her antennae. She actually smells the, a, a uh, chemical signature that that plant is pumping into the air, and she can zero in on it that way. Uh, and they can do that from quite a distance. They're very, very good at finding their host plant that way. Uh, and they have to be, because if you look at a typical landscape, there are chemical signatures from thousands of plants coming up, and they've got to be able to pick out the right one. They can't just land on any old plant and lay their, lay their eggs. Once the butterfly has identified the right plant, she lands on a leaf and can do something that Talmi calls tasting. What they're doing is using chemistry to find the correct leaf. And that starts right with the adult female who's locating the plant she's going to lay her egg on. 
So if you're talking about a butterfly, you know, they don't, they don't have chewing mouth parts, so they're not actually tasting a leaf the way we would. Uh, but they do have sensors on their feet, on their tarsi, uh, and they will fly along and land on a leaf, and they can actually smell that leaf. They can, they can sense the cuticular hydrocarbons of that leaf through their feet and know whether they're on the correct host plant or not. So that's the first tasting that's going on. Then they do lay their egg. Let's say they, they lay their egg on, on an oak tree, and that egg hatches. Well, the oak tree varies in leaf quality. Some leaves are going to not have that many tannins and, and they'll be easier to eat. Others will be loaded with tannins and more difficult to eat. So the caterpillars often walk up and down the leaves and they do actually taste them. They will, they will nibble away and say, um, this one's pretty good. I'll, I'll eat here for a while. There's also something called uh, induced uh, defenses where if a caterpillar starts to feed in one place within a few hours, that that place is going to become more toxic than it was. The plant actually pumps defenses to that area. So the caterpillar will want to move on and, and, and start feeding in another area. And they do, they do taste as they go to find which are the, the most nutritious and um, least defended leaves in order to eat. Convinced yet? If you're curious about this new approach to gardening, but you're still unsure about how to put it into practice, you may want to listen to our next episode. I'll be talking to Carolyn Summers, a landscape designer who's been working with native plants for many years. She's the one who converted me, so perhaps she'll have a similar effect on you. In the meantime, thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me for future episodes as I explore how culture shapes our relationship to the natural world.